listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Coming up on today's show, we dive into why the Bureau of Land Management is rounding up thousands of wild horses in Wyoming and across the West this fall. Eventually, they outgrow their the carrying capacity out there. Plus, the story of how one Montana lake is trying to protect native trout by increasing their resilience to climate change. It's an independent, you know, lineage of evolutionary history. It's beautiful, it's unique, it's never gonna happen again. But first, the Jackson Hole real estate market reported more than $1.8 billion in sales in the first half of 2021. It's a record-breaking rise in activity, similar to the experience of many other mountain towns across the West. KHOL's Will Walkie reports on a new program that's trying to capitalize on that money flowing through the valley with the goal of investing it back into affordable housing projects. Meg Daly, whom we should note is a former KHOL reporter, grew up in Jackson Hole in what she describes as a middle-class lifestyle. She remembers Wilson being full of hippies and cowboys. So my family moved to Jackson from Salt Lake City in 1977, I think. Uh, Let's see, and we lived in this log cabin at the end of Wenzel Lane, which is a very fancy property now, and at the time was not at all. I mean, we had like earwigs crawling out of the chinking in our log cabin, and it was, I mean, it was fine. It was a home. After a stint in Portland, Daly moved back home and was able to buy her own place in Rafter J. So I'm 52. What's happened in my lifespan and what, you know, younger people are facing now is that it's just owning a home has become more prohibitive. Daly says the log cabin she grew up in was worth $150,000 in 1984. Now, every lot on Wenzel Lane is worth at least $1 million, according to Zillow. In fact, the median sale price in Jackson Hole was over $1.6 million in the second quarter of 2021, a 28% increase from last year, according to a recent market report. These are figures Daly knows well. I've had friends and family, you know, benefit from the affordable housing program here and also, like, suffer because of our crazy real estate market. Daly's moving on to Bend, Oregon this year, looking for a bigger community and milder winters. She's also cashing in from the timing of selling her home, as she's heard many other locals have done during the pandemic. But Daly is also donating $5,000 from the sale to a new community housing fund, which launched this month. That felt like an amount that would be meaningful, um, substantial enough that if pooled with other people's money could help the housing trust and help housing effort here, and then also be manageable within our financial world. The Community Housing Fund is a new nonprofit designed to solicit donations from every real estate transaction in Jackson Hole. It was spearheaded by local realtor Devin Veeman. The goal of the program is to have realtors contributing at every transaction. So whether it's a big amount or a small amount, depending on the size of the deal, Uh, We just really want to create the culture that we're giving back something at every transaction and also invite our buyers and sellers to participate with us. Starting in late September, when a deal is closed on a home, the buyer, seller, and real estate agent all get prompts asking them if they'd like to donate to affordable housing projects around the valley. Veeman says it's an easy way for people to give back in a simple, discreet, and yes, tax-deductible way. You know, I get the question quite frequently from wealthy second, third, fourth, fifth homeowners coming here, 
how can I participate in the community right now? And it's, I shouldn't say it's a great segue because it's unfortunate that it's happening, but they're actually feeling the constraints of it now. Their favorite restaurants aren't open seven days a week. The services that they want, that they moved here for, they're not always open. So it kind of is a doorway for us to say, hey, it's a, it's a housing issue and you're gonna start to feel some of these things. And so here's how you can participate right now. 22 local realtors kicked the fund off by donating a combined $150,000 to help build 24 condos in Jackson through the local Affordable Housing Trust. That's another nonprofit led by Executive Director Ann Cresswell. What our hope is, is that we will increase participants over time. We will increase the total number of gifts that go to support the creation of new affordable housing and that people will make a gift that's meaningful to them. One aspect of the program is there's no minimum amount required to contribute. So Cresswell is left hoping that folks making mammoth transactions, i.e. the ultra wealthy, will pony up. Well, I think what's unique about how this fund is structured is that it's an umbrella organization. The structure and the infrastructure exists with title and escrow, support from the title and escrow agencies and companies. That's what makes the giving so simple and so streamlined. It's not a perfect system, and several Jackson elected officials have pointed out that the volunteer fund won't single-handedly solve the issue of housing affordability in the Valley. A mandatory real estate transfer tax, for example, would likely raise more revenue to the tune of more than $100 million annually, according to recent proposed legislation, compared to hundreds of thousands. But Cresswell says that kind of tax isn't likely to get passed anytime soon. I have been working on affordable housing in Jackson for 18 years, and for at least 18 years, this community has been talking about a real estate transfer tax, and it is not within the control <laughs> of this community. It, it has to happen at the statewide level, and this is something that we can do irrespective of the state and get this moving and get this rolling forward. For Daly, doing what she can to help right now also meant selling to another local whom she grew up with. We didn't want to just be leaving, you know, this kind of empty shell of a house. We love our community here. So this felt like a way to maybe help that continue here. The question remains, how many other volunteer donors will join Daly moving forward? Will Walkie, KHOL News. Wild horses are as iconic in the American West as the cowboy. But after this fall, there will be a lot fewer of the animals running free. KHOL's Emily Cohen has a story on the Bureau of Land Management's emergency roundups of 6,000 wild horses this month. The BLM's effort to round up thousands of wild horses this fall has drawn consternation from activists critical of both the methods used to capture the horses and the BLM's population limits. BLM Range Management Specialist Julie Smith explains why herd management is necessary on public lands that accommodate everything from mineral leases to recreation and Mustang rangeland. But the other issue with the horses is that they can double their herd size every four years, and they don't have a lot of natural predators. So they, you know, eventually they outgrow their, the carrying capacity out there. 
Though culling herd sizes is routine for the BLM, this latest initiative is largely a response to severe drought gripping the region, impacting both forage and water for the equines, meaning they don't have enough sustenance. And Smith didn't mince words when describing this year's conditions. Bad, dry, bad. <laughs> so Some of the nation's largest wild mustang herds are here in Wyoming, just south of Pinedale. The BLM uses a variety of methods to manage herd size, including dart birth control. In some cases, the BLM also pays people to adopt the horses. Other times, the horses end up in government holding pens or they're auctioned off. KHOL recently visited the Eastern Idaho State Fair, where a number of 4-H trained Mustangs, originally rounded up in Chalice, Idaho, were being auctioned. Though just yearlings, the horses were quite small for their age, largely due to malnutrition and with strange haircuts. Nicholas Hardy from the 4-H program explains. So when horses have a lack of minerals, they eat each other's manes and tails. Each spring since 2009, 4-H club members like 15-year-old Cooper Hatch from Blackfoot, Idaho, have partnered with the BLM to select and take home young horses, generally 6 to 11 months old, so they can begin the process of training them, a key step in their eventual adoption. I've learned a lot working with her. Um, I've never really worked with a Mustang before, so it's really cool. While they have to be auctioned off, the horses are often bought back by the families that raise them, if they can afford them. Just like houses, horse prices have skyrocketed during the pandemic. A Mustang, it depends on the year. Um, as my experience, I bought my first year back for $350. And then last year, I sold my second year horse for $1,000. But the highest I've ever seen them go for, was, since I've been showing, is $1,400. In October, the BLM will be rounding up 3,500 wild horses in Wyoming, 40% of the state's wild horse population. There will also be a number of wild horse adoptions and auctions throughout the fall. I'm Emily Cohen for KHOL listener-supported community radio. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up next, KHOL Music Director Jack Catlin interviews the Jackson band Coyote Queen, about how music brought them together first as bandmates and then as husband and wife. Got a dust in last night. Always turns up my morning. Local band Coyote Queen came together rather organically. Band leader Mike Swanson and his wife Kate started out as friends, then became a musical duo, and then they got married, as the legendary Bill Briggs once proclaimed on stage at the Hootenanny. After a couple of previous projects, Mike Swanson was inspired by the style of late 60s, early 70s musicians like Graham Parsons, The Birds, and Emmylou Harris. He aimed to start a local country rock band with a little bit of folk and bluegrass thrown in for good measure. Over a year in the making, Coyote Queen's debut album, It Takes a Steady Wind, acts as a capture of time, place, mental wrangling, and peace for the band. 
Mike and Kate Swanson of the band Coyote Queen join us now in the K-Twill studio. So tell us about those early days playing together at the Hootenanny and how music played a part in progressing your relationship from good friends <laughs> to life partners. <laughs> well, I, I think music was always our connection. You know, we met working together at the, the Grand Teton Music Festival and we just got to see music constantly from, you know, some of the best players in the world there. And we went to concerts together and, and music was always kind of the thing when we were friends and, and co-workers. And Kate told me she sang and um, convinced her to play at the Hoot Nanny. And we started doing that weekly and kind of became our thing for a while. And yeah, things just kind of evolved from there. But yeah, our tightest knit part of our relationship has always been through music. Yeah, it's been cool to see too, like the music I grew up with and the music Mike grew up with and where things overlapped and there's even times now where I'll say like, oh, Tom T. Hall. And I was like, I showed you Tom T. Hall. And Mike was like, I already knew about Tom T. Hall. <laughs> so <laughs> it's still a thing for sure. And we still like to, you know, listen to vinyl and play together. So yeah, it's That's been great. good. You've been working on this record for well over a year. And I read in the JH News and Guide article that the process changed dramatically once the COVID lockdown became a reality. Can you walk us through the concept and making of the album, It Takes a Steady Wind? I had some lyrics kicking around and I did go to Targi Music Camp with Jim Lauderdale and that was just super fun and amazing and really my biggest takeaway from that was just like write down everything that comes to your head when it does because it, it comes whenever, middle of the night, out on the trail, you know, just jot notes on the phone. So that made me become more proactive about songwriting and so yeah, I had about four or five songs before the pandemic that I was like, okay, and good friend Aaron Davis runs his studio down in, in Hoback. So he was always very encouraging, like, hey, I got to get you in. We got to, you know, at least do some scratch tracks, see if this comes together. Yeah, the pandemic hit and it was kind of like, let's mask up and <laughs> and do this. And he was very encouraging. And we got in there, I think, May of, of 2020 and put down the scratch tracks and then kind of sat on them for a while. And it was this four or five song EP later in the summer added drums and uh, bass with Rob Seidel and Ryan Tasnick. These songs just really came to life and I was really excited about them and, and started reaching out. One of the benefits of the pandemic, I think, was a lot of, very unfortunately, a lot of musicians that weren't touring and, and looking for session work. So I just randomly threw out a note to Brett Lanier, plays pedal steel for the Bar Brothers, and he was super receptive and down. And um, Kate, like lives next to my mom. Yeah, he lives <laughs> close to where Kate grew up in Vermont and he sent back his, his pedal steel tracks on top of everything and it was like, uh, I think we have something here. These are these are really coming together. So, that is a good segue to my next question. You collaborated with a bunch of different local musicians on the record, including, like you mentioned, Rob Seidel, Mike Patton, Matt Heron, and of course Aaron Davis, who recorded, co-produced, engineered, and mixed the album at his Three-Hearted Recording Studio in Hoback. How important is collaboration in your creative process? Uh, it's everything. That's one of my favorite parts of of music, and really why I was coming from the improvisational style of kind of the college jam band times into bluegrass it's it's really that accessibility and um you know the picking circles and that kind of community feel you know heading into this project yeah i just found all my favorite people found some new people through connections and, and otherwise that were down to play you know i wrote the music wrote the lyrics kind of structured the songs but in a lot of ways kind of left things open for brett and matt and brock and people that added these layers on top just kind of said, hey, this is a general loose idea of what I had, but I trust you. These are all, you know, the best musicians in, in Jackson and, and beyond and just really happy with what they came up with. 
So your latest single off the record, It Takes a Steady Wind, is called Only You and includes the lyrics, and only you can show me how I slip right off the only path that leads to here and now. Can you expand on those lyrics? We've been here over 11 years now, and it's such an amazing place to live, but anybody that has lived here year-round knows that it, it comes with its challenges, and a lot of people move here, I think, hoping to solve some things in their life, and, and in some regards, getting outside and, and doing that, um, really getting after it with everything that's accessible here is, is so amazing, but, you know, I think it's still a hard place year-round for staying level and and uh, keeping a good head on your shoulders and, and moving forward, and there's a lot of that in this album. You know, I think it is, for me, expressing uh, that sentiment and certain struggles here and there and, and things that have happened and high and low points that, that anybody goes through. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people find that getting into meditation or staying present or any of those things can can be helpful. So I think that, you know, staying in the here and now is the tag end of that chorus that really just felt right. You can hear music from Coyote Queen right here on KHOL during our local music hour. That airs weekdays from 3 to 4 p.m. Make sure to visit 891KHOL.org for more music, news, and culture. I'm Jack Catlin, and this is KHOL Jackson. Lost my trust in everything that was Holding on the fleeing fallen dust Took some time to offer up a dime Start to fade that I owe myself Our last story today comes to us through the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Collaborative. In Northeast Montana, climate change is making it easier for invasive trout species to drive native trout to extinction. Sophia Stewart-Rossi of KSJD reports on how tribal and non-tribal agencies are researching the issue together to keep Flathead Lake as the resource it has been for centuries. Sometimes you have to wait just a second, you know. You have to wait for the fish. I got a fish! I finally got one! The sun is beginning to rise over the Mission Mountain Range, and Jason Malin has lost count of how many lake trout he's caught from his boat in the middle of Flathead Lake, Montana. Flathead Lake is one of the cleanest lakes in the world. It's filled with crystal clear water that flows out of protected lands of the Forest Service and Glacier National Park. The lake stretches for nearly 200 square miles. The southern half lies within the boundary of a sovereign nation, the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes of the Flathead Reservation. See, now this to me is a big, big fish. Colonizers introduced the invasive lake trout to Flathead Lake more than a hundred years ago to increase fish production for recreation. And as these fish keep populating, they're pushing native fish species like bull trout to extinction. Malin expects to catch about two coolers worth of lake trout today, roughly 100 fish. Yeah! Woo! In a rhythm with two fishing poles, Malin has only caught lake trout this morning. He's noticed changes to these fish over the last 20 years, like how big they've gotten from eating a lot in the lake. I could put 100 fish in that cooler, no problem. Mm-hmm. And now it's you can fit 50 in there and you got trouble closing the lid. The Rocky Mountains are experiencing an average increased temperature of 2 degrees Fahrenheit, 
due to CO2 emissions being emitted into Earth's atmosphere. Warmer water temperatures make it easier for non-native trout, like lake trout, to thrive, while native fish struggle. And now lake trout have begun to invade the rivers and streams around Flathead Lake. A lot of invasive species are invasive because they're better at dealing with the changing planet that we are creating. It's tipping the scales towards the invasive fish. Postdoctoral research associate at University of Montana's Flathead Lake Biological Station, Charles Van Rees, is actively working on saving another native trout species headed to extinction, the West Slope Cutthroat Trout. Native trout species like West Slope Cutthroat and Bull Trout have become genetically diluted as the species interbreeds with non-native fish. Genes are being mixed, and with repeated crossbreeding, a species may be lost forever. Van Rees' research team is hoping to find the specific genetic makeup that non-native trout have that withstands human-induced climate change. Having this information will allow scientists to detect and potentially prevent invasive species from genetically diluting a population and increase the odds of native trout passing on genes that make them more resilient to warmer waters. Van Rees says if species extinction is preventable, humans should try to do that. But in my opinion, you know, when you think about any species on the planet, this is a biological lineage that has persisted for billions, millions of years to become what it is. It's, a, it's an independent, you know, lineage of, of evolutionary history. It's beautiful. It's unique. It's never going to happen again. Where do we get this idea that it's okay to destroy that? The Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes fisheries biologist, Barry Hansen, has been working with Montana fish for over 30 years. Tribes are in a unique position because they have a long history with species that occurred here, evolved here, whereas most non-tribal people are fairly newly arrived here and not so don't have the history or the attachment to the native species like tribal people do. Hansen and his team have been actively working on suppressing lake trout by 75%. They want to keep some lake trout around for fishing guides who are financially invested in that species of fish. Hansen says that native trout have been adapting to changes to the lake for centuries, but are now decreasing in population. He says the least humans can do is try to take out the introduced and invasive trout species to help native trout survive. One way they do that is by hosting Mac Days on Flathead Lake, where anglers are invited to come catch and kill as many lake trout as they want for cash prizes. And then even if you had the lake trout problem, Removing the lake trout wouldn't be enough because you would have that doesn't fix your climate change issue. So we can fix the lake trout issue and we have the resilience to climate change in this system. The two degree change in temperatures means ecosystems are changing, threatening species extinction at Flathead Lake. Agencies that monitor fish around the lake are actively researching how they can help native species survive, keeping Flathead Lake what it has been for centuries. I, I just I just love Flathead Lake. It's so beautiful out here, you know. In Montana, I'm Sophia Stewart-Rossi.
And now for the weekly news roundup. Here are the headlines you might have missed this week. The Teton County coroner, Dr. Brent Blue, confirmed Tuesday afternoon that the remains found Sunday in Grand Teton National Park are indeed those of Gabrielle Gabby Petito, the 22-year-old woman whose local disappearance has captivated the country. Blue's initial determination of Petito's cause of death is homicide, though the official cause of death is pending final autopsy results. The FBI Denver Division also confirmed Tuesday that the forensic search has concluded at the Spread Creek Dispersed Camping Area, which is once again open to the public. Investigators continue to seek information from anyone who used the campground between August 27th and 30th, or from anyone who may have had contact with Petito and her boyfriend, Brian Laundrie. Wyoming Governor Mark Gordon announced that the Cowboy State will petition the federal government to delist grizzly bears as a federal endangered species and return management to the state. In a press conference with reporters, Gordon said there are now over 1,000 grizzlies in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. This is a day of celebration, a marked day of celebration, not only for grizzly bear, but for Wyoming. As we prove time and time again that we are experts in wildlife conservation for our state values and iconic species. A petition will be sent to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and is expected to be filed in the coming weeks. A new survey is asking for public feedback on recreation on the Teton River and Teton Valley. Will Stubblefield is Education Program Director for Friends of the Teton River, a nonprofit group that's partnering with Teton County, Idaho, and other stakeholders on the survey. We're really targeting anybody who has a connection to the Teton River as a resource. That means anglers, boaters, floaters, landowners, bird watchers, and more. And Stubblefield says the information the public provides will be used to help inform future river management policies. The survey is open now through October 17th and can be found at tetoncountyidaho.gov. The Jackson Town Council heard updates from several local department heads at its Monday meeting, including Police Chief Michelle Weber. She says this summer has been incredibly busy and officers have been strained with recent COVID outbreaks, the return of local Marine Riley McCollum, who was killed in Afghanistan, and the Gabby Petito investigation in the past couple of weeks. She also said the animal shelter has been inundated with animals being put up for adoption. We currently have 12 dogs and 23 cats at the shelter. So if anyone's looking for cats, we have plenty to go around. Like many other departments that gave updates Monday, the animal shelter is short-staffed and looking for employees, but struggling to retain people due to lack of affordable local housing. There are two weeks left this season to join the Jackson Hole Historical Society and Museum for an historic walking tour of downtown Jackson. Executive Director of the museum, Morgan Jowen, says the tours give an overview of the history of human presence in the Tetons and much more. You'll hear about the first building built on Town Square. You'll hear about the Van Vleck homestead and the Miller's house, which were both home to two of the women who are part of the all-women town council of 1920, and then a bunch of other stops. Jowen also says she especially loves the story behind the development of the town square, which is the only one of its kind in Wyoming. That's attributed in large part to two women, Maggie Simpson and Grace Miller, who served as mayor. The story goes that it was Maggie's homestead and she had the land and she worked with uh, Grace to 
parcel it up and kind of subdivide uh, what then became the town fair. Tours depart from the Historical Society and Museum on Cash Street at 10.30 a.m. on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays through October 1st. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strombucket. Subscribe now to Jackson Unpacked on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson. Jackson.